Good morning, everybody. Welcome to church. Welcome to Trinity. My name is Jenny Seibel. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity Indicator, and it is very good to be in worship with you this morning. Um, we've already read some hard texts today, and we're going to continue. Um, we are in a series we're calling Citizens, uh, talking about what it means to be citizens in the kingdom of God. And we've been in the Gospel of Matthew, and we've decided to stay in the Gospel of Matthew and continue to talk about what it looks like to be citizens in the kingdom of God, because it feels important now as much as ever um, to figure out what that looks like together and to sit in this, this gospel together. So we're going to read in chapter 21, starting in verse 33. We're going to read the parable of the wicked tenants this morning. This is Jesus talking. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. And then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the harvest time had come, he sent his slaves to the tenants to collect his produce. But the tenants seized his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other slaves more than the first. And they treated them in the same way. Finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. And when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and get his inheritance. So they seized him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Jesus asks. They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at the harvest time. So Jesus says to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces the fruits of the kingdom. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they realized that he was speaking about them. And they wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowds because they regarded him as a prophet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy, we, Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence, for your, um, your constant presence with us, Lord, the way that you fill in spaces for us, whether we feel it or not, Lord, um, you have spoken these words, Jesus, a long time ago, and the Holy Spirit makes it as though you have just spoken them over us again. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to fill in the gaps between this moment and where we are, Lord, that you would continue to do the work that you do and make this word timeless in the way that, that parables can be, Lord. We ask you to give us eyes to see and ears to hear what it is that you might have to say to us this morning. Lord, I ask that where my, my words just fail, Holy Spirit, that you would continue to fill what is empty. We entrust this text in our hearts to you in this moment. We ask you to be with us. Give us grace to hear it, Jesus. It's in your name we pray, amen. 
So as I said, we've been in the Gospel of Matthew. We have been looking at what it looks like to be citizens in the kingdom of God through this text. And the reason why I think this text is particularly helpful and important for us to think about these things is because Jesus in this gospel is like a new Moses. And what did Moses do but come and present to the people of God what it looks like to be citizens in the kingdom of God? So that's exactly what Jesus is here to do for us. So we've been in this gospel talking about what this looks like. And yet there is a point that has happened in this chapter that kind of shifts things. So as Jesus is presenting all of this information about what it looks like to be a citizen in the kingdom of God, there is another group of people, these religious leaders, um, the people who should have been most apt to hear the message of Jesus, of the Messiah that they've been waiting for. And yet they're the ones who are the most disagreeable about what Jesus has to say. And what has happened in chapter 21 is, is, is a, a moment where what was kind of under the surface has, has boiled to the top. Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey and they have called him king. Um, he is now teaching in the temple. And he's giving these messages about what the kingdom of God is like again. And now instead of there being this kind of under the rug disagreement, these Pharisees and scribes are at, they're just at a boiling point. They're butting heads with Jesus. And so he's teaching with authority in the temple and they begin to challenge his authority. And in just Jesus fashion, he responds by giving them three parables. And, um, and in doing so, confusing all of us for, for so many years um, with these parables, we, as Christians, we just wrestle over these things. But, but I think it does what parables do. And it, it, like I said in the prayer, it's just timeless um, what, what parables can say to us. And so it's helpful as an allegory to go through and kind of identify who is who in these stories. So we're going to begin there. And it begins so lovely, just like the, um, the passage from Isaiah that Beth read a moment ago. The parable begins with a landowner who we're going to say is God. And God loves his vineyard. It says in the text, he planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it and built a watchtower. And this is all meant to emphasize the loving care that he took in placing these things in an order so that this vineyard would flourish. And it's meant for us to kind of think of Genesis one, where God lays out so carefully and so patiently all the things that would make this world good. And then he calls it good. And that's what's happening right here in this passage. God is making a vineyard that he loves and he's setting it up to flourish. And just like in Genesis one, he puts tenants in this vineyard um, to steward it, to have authority over it, to take care of it. And just like in Genesis one, the temptation of harvesting the fruit for themselves is too much. And they succumb to this temptation. The tenants want more than just authority. They want more than just stewardship, a vocation. They want ownership. They want to reap what isn't theirs. They want the fruit of the harvest and they're, willing to get violent in order to get it. So this landowner sends his own people who we would say are prophets and teachers, people throughout the ages who have spoken truth, who we often don't believe until they've, they've died. <laughs> um, and uh, these people continue to be harassed and um, beaten, stoned, killed even. But the landowner God is undeterred and he sends his son to harvest the fruit. But instead of seeing this son, which is basically like seeing the landowner himself, these tenants look at this son and say, not only are we now going to harvest the fruit, but we're actually going to kill him and take his inheritance. So things have really escalated. And if you listen closely, this is a gospel story. 
So the religious leaders realize this parable is about them. As we read at the end of this text, that's the big realization. As Matthew talked about last week, parables are all about surprise. And the funny thing is it's not a good, it's not usually a good surprise. It's not a surprise we're excited about. It's almost always a surprise uh, to hear that we ought to be looking at this parable and realizing something about ourselves that needs to be, um, that is work that needs to be done. And that's exactly what happens here. The surprise is to the religious leaders. They are not the servants who've, are continually beaten and um, put down by the people in the vineyard. They are actually the tenants, they're the ones doing the harm. And in the same way, as we read, I, as every time I read this text this week, as I read that end part that says they realized it was about them, I just had the sense that that ought to be what I feel too when I read this, that I get to the end of this text and the surprise is that it's about them. And so, so I've been asking, Lord, what does this say about me? What does it mean for me to find myself in the shoes of the oppressor and the enemy? What does it mean for me to reject Jesus in this way? So here's what I think the tenants are saying to us. There is something in us that we can see all throughout the Bible, including in Genesis, that is not satisfied with the vocation we've been given with our citizenship. It's not enough to just be a part of it, to have responsibilities in it. We want ownership. We want to reap what is God's. We want to take from each other and from God himself. We demand ownership and we want the rewards that come with it. And I think what's happening in this text is, is it's showing us that we begin to confuse after doing this for a while, what is God and what is ours? What's happening in this text with the religious leaders are questions around justice. And I say that because every time someone is harmed or something is taken from someone, those are issues of justice, just hands down always and forever. Those are issues of justice. And so what's happening in this, this text in particular is we're looking at what the difference is between fighting for justice and fighting for ourselves. So what does this look like? What's an example of this? I think many of us are so busy being afraid of what the racial justice movement means for us, that we can't appropriately grieve the loss of someone like Breonna Taylor and look at the example of what that is in itself and call it injustice. Because if I call it injustice, it means something for me that I'm not really ready to deal with. The mixture of myself injustice gets it's like entangled and I don't know how to sift it out. I don't know how to see what might actually be something that God is doing because I'm worried for myself. We say things like it's sad, but, and then we have an answer for, for why there is, there is some sort of excuse as to why I don't have to be fully in it emotionally as I ought to be. This is just one example of many also, just to say that. Um, when this what about me thinking goes untended, the fruit of it is violence. And I don't need to stand here and say either that, um, it's, that it's just um, violence within ourselves. We know very clearly from what has been in the news and what we've been talking about for so much of the last few months, there is very real physical violence in our world. Um, but I think what Jesus is, wants me to see and wants you to see is that this violence, this physical violence that we see within our world begins in our hearts. So what does that look like? is the question for us. It looks like becoming numb to the pain of others. It looks like celebrating other people's failures. It looks like being willing to tear other people down to get our point across or win arguments. It's the way that we joke. We would call it cynicism, but for so many of us, especially recently, our whole worldview has become violent. The words that we say are words of violence. We categorize people as enemies when they just disagree with us or when they're just hard to love. 
we see any restriction on our lives and we call it persecution, which is, which is a violent word when you really think about it. Celebrating pain and the deaths of others is something that we're doing all the time these days. And the problem is, and what I think God would have us see in here is that the violence begins to feel like justice to us. So it's interesting at the end of this parable, when Jesus asked the religious leaders, he asked them, so when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they say to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death or in another translation, those wretches will have a wretched death, (laughs) Um, which is a, a harsh thing to say. But it's important to note that it's the religious leaders and not Jesus who actually gives voice to the concept of God's justice as violent. They're the ones who proclaim this. So prone towards violence that their judgment and conviction of the tenants is miserable death. They've cultivated violence so much in their life that their worldview is only that of violent justice. So I've been asking myself this week, where have I I let self-preservation and self-interest get tangled up with the justice of God? Where have I been protecting myself so much that I can't think about or grieve for other people? Where have I let violence grow in me? And, um, And what I've just really needed is for Jesus to say something to me about those things. So I've been asking myself this week, those questions, and then I have been asking for Jesus to respond. And he responds with three things in this text in particular. and they are cryptic. <laughs> they, are, they are as cryptic as a parable. And so I would say to you, as someone who goes to this church and is here worshiping with us, I would say that you ought to be sitting with these three things this week and asking Jesus what he is saying to you in particular. Um, but for the purposes of preaching, here is what I received from the Holy Spirit um, throughout this week. These three things. The first thing is he quotes Psalm 118. He says, Have you never heard this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is amazing in our eyes. And as I talked about earlier in this exact same chapter is when Jesus rode in on a donkey into Jerusalem and they quoted the same exact Psalm, um, calling him King and saying, Hosanna. And I think what Jesus is doing here by quoting this saying, have you never heard this? Of course they have, you know. By saying this, what Jesus is saying is he's acknowledging the fact that he was going to be rejected and killed by those who ought to have known better. The sad legacy, I think, of God's people and God's church is the way that we praise Jesus out of one side of our mouth and curse the ones he loves out of the other, which is what they are doing. They praise him and they also reject him. So we who call on the name of Jesus have a responsibility of finding the ways in which we tend to reject Jesus and our dismissal of and anger towards others. Jesus says to the least of these, how you treat them is how you treat me, how you see me. And the question for us is, how are we treating those in which we think are the least of these? How have we been been doing that recently? How do I feel about them in my heart? How do I actually treat them in real life? How do I talk about them when they're not around? Jesus would say, you are doing so to me. So the third thing Jesus says, oh, sorry, second thing Jesus says, um, is a statement about the justice of God. He says, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces the fruits of the kingdom. So Jesus gives us here a vision of his justice of the world. And it's not violent justice, it's restorative justice. Not a miserable death, not public shame, a sorting out of what belongs to whom and giving it back to them 
That's God's justice, plain and simple as Jesus says it here. So I'm not going to, going to assume I know what it means to have the kingdom taken from you. Um, I hope it never happens to any of us. Um, but I do believe that it's a warning for us to begin to think about what it looks like to be in this kind of nonviolent justice where you take what someone has that someone else's and you just give it back to the person it belongs to. Like a teacher with small children, there's no violence that needs to be had, just a giving back of something that belongs to someone else. What might it look like for us to begin to think about justice in that way and to act that way in our own lives, starting with the people who we call our enemies? So the third thing Jesus says is the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. And I think if we embrace this tendency towards violence, we put ourselves at risk of missing the gift and the grace of Jesus. We end up falling on the stone that should have lifted us higher. This parable has an identical twin in second Samuel chapter 12. So if you're a nerd, go check it out. Um, when David realizes through a parable, much like this one, a, a good friend comes to him and tells him a parable to kind of reveal to him what has happened with him and Bathsheba and Bathsheba's husband, that he has murdered him. And David is kind of clouded from able, being able to see what this really means, what he has actually done. And when he's told this parable, he realizes he is the oppressor. He is the one who has committed violence and he has made himself the enemy of God and it crushes him. And out of that comes Psalm 51, um, a beloved song, Psalm of most of us, a lot of us, where he says the words that we just sang in a, mo a moment ago, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And I believe this needs to be the prayer and the cry of the church in the moment that we're in. Um, that God has made this earth, like the Isaiah says, my beloved has a vineyard and and that vineyard has, has gone wrong and we need God to enter back into this story. We need to ask him to live through us, to be resurrected through us, create in us clean hearts, O oh God, and renew right spirits within us so that we can be good tenants of your vineyard. So what I'm asking you to do this week and what I'm going to continue to do myself is to ask God to untangle ourselves from what justice might really look like. Can I take my fear of what about me and put it aside so that I can ask God, what do I really think about things that are going on in the world? What do I really think about justice? What does the kingdom really have to say to me? Can I hear it? And I would say we need to ask God to reveal the violence in us as well. To ask ourselves, where are we taking what is in ours? So this is a parable of judgment and some of us have favorite parables. This is no one's. <laughs> they're heavy and hard to hear and they're hard to preach about. And they're, it's, it's just hard to put language to, to judgment for us. Um, but as long as we're preaching these texts, they're not the final word. And there is still always an invitation in parables of judgment um, to repentance and I'm just inspired by God and the, the hope that he has to continue to send person after person to these people who did not deserve it. Who are we ought to be listening to in this moment? Who should we be opening our ears to, to hear from that we would maybe normally reject and even commit violence against? And I, I feel led to say one more thing before I end, which is that um, some of us feel like God is an absentee landlord. Um, 
And I think this parable and this metaphor is so real and that so many of us feel that way. We feel, um, we feel like God has, has placed this thing and it ought to be ordered and it's not. And now he's away in a distant country and we're waiting for him. Um, and I think that the beautiful thing about that is that that is a true thing about how many of us feel. But the thing where metaf- metaphors fall short is they cannot encompass the whole truth about something. And so if that is the way that you feel, and if that is making you tend towards wanting to own things and grab for violence and feel defensive, then go to other texts in the Bible because there's way more that speak about how God is more present than we can feel or know. So if he feels absent to you, Read these things that make him feel close. The truth about him being so close. The person who said this parable is the same one who spoke the words about never leaving the one behind. So if you feel like God is absent to you, let other words speak truth to you this week. So in the spirit of a parable of judgment and a response, what we're going to do now is we're going to confess. So we're going to take a moment of silence to, um, to confess to the Lord And then we'll pray the confession together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone, we have not loved you with our whole heart, And we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Almighty God, have mercy on us. Forgive us all our sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen us in all goodness and by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep us in eternal life. Amen. Frederick Buechner says the one who judges us most finally will be the one who loves us most fully. And so we end parables of judgment with communion, um, with passing the peace to one another. So I can say to you with the power and the persistence of a God who will not give up on us, may the peace of the Lord be with you. And also with you. Amen. Pass the peace to one another. Text someone, call someone. This is the moment in time with, for the church where we became right with one another. And if that is what you feel led to do during this time, may you do that. Here's what the Bible says about communion. On the night that he was handed over to suffering and death, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup of wine. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which was shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink this, You do it in remembrance of me. And this is a great mystery. And so after we say these words, we proclaim the mystery of our faith. That Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Let's pray. We celebrate the memorial of our redemption, O Father, and this sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. We're calling his death 
resurrection, and ascension, we offer you these gifts. We call them gifts, Lord, and as they are gifts to you, but they are gifts to us. We thank you for this gift. We thank you that in this meal, you would maybe satisfy this need for ownership and violence in us, Lord. That through your own death, you satisfy what seeks death in us. We ask you, Lord, to be present in this meal. Give us your grace. Bless us, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And before we take communion, we pray as our Savior Jesus taught us to pray, and we pray it boldly. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Come and receive the gifts of God for the people of God. We'll see you at communion.